Well, turn in your Bible this morning to the Gospel according to Mark chapter 4. We have spent our spring and our summer focused on how amazing Jesus is. And we're going to continue to do that today, and we're just going to jump right into the scripture passage. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 says, On that day when evening had come, he told them, Let's cross over to the other side of the sea. And so they left the crowd and took him along since he was in the boat and other boats were with him. So let me give you some context. The sea here is not the Mediterranean Sea. It's not the Red Sea, though both of those seas border Israel. But what we have here is a freshwater lake that was known by many names, but most popularly at this period of history, known as the Sea of Galilee. Now, I had an opportunity with, uh, with a lot of my friends here that I see today to spend several days at the Sea of Galilee about a month ago. And I wanted to take a moment and just talk about that for a second. We're going to have a, another chance next week as we're in Mark chapter 8 to discuss this again. Uh, but our trip to Israel was amazing. Now, I'll tell you something, and I want you to listen to the whole story so that you don't think this is an arrogant comment, but as we prepared for the trip, I was excited to go, but I really was excited because, uh, of course, I wanted to walk where Jesus walked, and I wanted to stand where he stood, and I wanted to you know, be actually present in some of those very important locations. I knew it would be inspirational. But I've heard so many people say who have gone to Israel that they learned so much about the Bible. But I really thought that's not going to be the case for me. I've read the Gospels a couple of times. In fact, probably a couple of thousand times. I've, I've studied these, uh, uh, these texts. I've, uh, I've read Josephus. I've looked at the pictures. I've, I've read about the archaeology. I've preached through most every passage in the Gospels and most passages in the New Testament. I really thought I'm not going to learn much. I'm going because it'll be a great inspirational trip and an encouragement in my walk. But it's not going to be educational for me. Listen, your pastor was wrong. I got there and found out just how little I knew about the Bible and the New Testament. It was overwhelming. Uh, when people say it's a worth a year seminary, that is not an overstatement. It will change, I believe, everything you read, at least in the Gospels, and, and really beyond that as you study the Bible. It'll change your perspective. You will read it differently. Depending on how much you know about the Bible, you'll pick up on different things. And so if you, you know, were sort of a novice in the Bible, you're going to learn some things that will amaze you. If you've been in the Bible for a lifetime, you're going to learn maybe some different things but you'll learn something. And so if you've not gone, I encourage you to go. And so in June of 2021, we're going to go back. That was not the plan before I went, but it's the plan today. Uh, in two years, I want to go back and I want to take everybody. You know, we'll get us about 10 buses and uh, four airplanes. Uh, you think about going. It's not an inexpensive trip. That's why we're giving you two years notice. And uh, you, you do some prep and you do some thinking, young or old, come and be a part of this trip. It will be life-changing. And I'll say some more about this as we go through the message. And then, like I said, again, especially next week, as we're going to talk about Caesarea, uh, Caesarea Philippi in Mark chapter 8. It's interesting, these messages were planned and the dates and all of that, um, I don't know, months and months ago. 
but it just sort of dovetails into some of the experiences that we've had in the last month. So the Sea of Galilee, that's what it's talking about here in verse 35 and verse 36. Uh, This is an important location really in all of biblical history. It's mentioned as early as Numbers chapter 34 there. It's called the Sea of Chinnereth. And it's called by, called by a number of different names through the Bible, but you see it every few pages. It is an important uh, place both in biblical history and just in world history. Uh, it is about the size and shape of the loop around Nacogdoches. I was trying to figure out a good comparison that, uh, that everybody would understand. And, and so I put the maps on top of each other and about the size and shape of the loop around Nacogdoches, 13 miles from north to south, eight and a half miles from east to west, 40,000 uh, acres. It's, uh, it, it's a large lake. It's not the largest lake, uh, but it certainly is an important lake. Uh, over half of the events recorded in the Gospels happened either on or around uh, the, um, uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus walking on the water, Jesus choosing uh, his disciples, Jesus restoring Peter after the resurrection. You know that story. Uh, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? All of that happened right here around this small uh, lake. Now it says that they crossed, in the verses we read, they crossed from one place to the other. And if you read the verses before and after, you can see where they started and where they ended. They started in Capernaum, a very crowded city. And so there were a lot of people there. And Jesus is wanting to get away to spend time with his disciples. So he heads to Gergesa, uh, which you see there in chapter 5. So from a populated area to sort of a desolate area. It was about six miles across the lake from one point to the other. It would be, and I tried to imagine it on the map, if Capernaum, if you think about Capernaum, it would be about CC's smokehouse on the loop, okay? And Gergesa then would be the corner of Stallings and Star. Now, if you're a longtime Nacogdoches, you know what that is, where that is. So that's the journey, six miles from the northwest corner to the east side, and they are, uh, they're headed, headed along that, uh, uh, that journey. Let's continue to read. Verse 38. I'm sorry, verse 37. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. And so this great storm comes. You might ask, why would they have gotten in the water, in the boat, in the water, if a storm uh, was coming? Uh, but they didn't know. In, in, those, in that geographic region, storms will come just uh, without any warning. You've got to understand that the Sea of Galilee is 650 feet below sea level. Uh, we talk about New Orleans being below sea level. You heard people say that, and it is. It's about six feet below. So the Sea of Galilee, 650 feet below. Now, it, it's more of a hole in the earth, really, even than that uh, tells you. Because on the northwest side, right close to the sea, mountains that go 4,000 feet above sea level. On the east side, mountains that go 2,000 feet above sea level. And so you think about this, on the northwest side, there is just in a short space of time, the top of the mountain to the sea is almost a mile down, 4,600 feet. It's a half mile down on the other side. 
When you drive to the Sea of Galilee, you go over a lot of plains, you go up what seems like a small mountain, and then you go down a hole for the next hour. This, this, this lake is just at the bottom of a bowl of milk. You think about that. And, and so when the, when the winds blow over, and they blow over the mountains, and they're a mile, these surface winds, were surface winds, are now a mile over uh, the sea, when they're, when they're temperature variances, they plunge down and it creates just a sudden violent storm. In fact, I was studying this this last week. In 2015, this happened and created in this lake, small lake, I guess you would call it a small lake, it created winds 10 feet tall, caused all kind of damage. Uh, many people were injured uh, and it can happen just, uh, just like that. And so that's how they ended up in the storm. And it was such a terrible storm that the disciples, uh, many of whom were professional fishermen and spent their lives on the lake, they were fearful for their lives. You see that in the next verse. Uh, it says, he, speaking of Jesus, was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. We'll come back to that. Uh, so they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we are going to die? They thought they were going to sink in the Sea of Galilee. Verse 39, he got up, Jesus got up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, silence, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And verse 41 is so interesting to me. It says, and they were terrified. If you're going to underline something in this passage, that's what I would underline. They were terrified. What are they terrified of now? The storm is gone. It says they were terrified and asked one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now in those verses, you see something pretty amazing. You see both the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. So you see Jesus, first of all, you see his humanity. Jesus is tired. He is so tired from ministering to the crowds that he gets in the boat and immediately goes to sleep. Now this isn't like a cruise liner where he went, goes down to his cabin and has somebody fluff up his pillow. This is just a fishing boat. And so he's in this small fishing boat and he just lies down. He is so exhausted. He can sleep on a boat and he can sleep on a boat in the storm. We need to be reminded that Jesus is fully man with all the limitations, with all of the fatigue, with all of the difficulty, with all the sore muscles, with all of the, uh, I'm, I'm tired and need some rest and I'm hungry and thirsty and it's hot out here and I'm sweating. All those things, Jesus is fully man. Sometimes we think of Jesus like uh, some comic book superhero. And you know, these superhero movies are so common today, popular today, and you may not know that, but I have a couple of teenage daughters, so I know that, and I go to all of them with them. And so these, um, you know, these people walk around and they, you know, they, they look like just regular people, but in the comic book movies, uh, they're really superheroes, you know, just, just wearing normal clothes. Well, that's not what Jesus was. He was a human. He got tired. He's... He, he had difficulty, his muscles hurt, he sweat. So here we see the humanity of Jesus. But in the same passage, we also see his deity, right? He wakes up and what does he do? He calms the storm, calms the storm. And this is a storm, maybe 10 foot waves then, we don't know exactly, but a great storm, great enough to scare these fishermen to think that they might die and Jesus just calms it. Now, if you look at the, passage. There's something that's easy to look over, but I think it's important. Right at the end of verse 39, 
It said, he says, silence be still, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And that's what it says in the, in the Greek, in the original. Uh, the word great, you know what that is in Greek? Mega. You know that word. He says there was a mega calm. So this doesn't mean that the wind, you know, just turned into a more gentle breeze and the waves became more manageable. No, just in an instant, the waves were gone. The surface was like glass. The air was eerily still. And it was silent. Can you imagine? I mean, being in a storm like that and then just in an instant, there's not even a sign that there had ever been a storm. The water is so flat. It just feels funny. It's so still and quiet. And Jesus did that with a word. And so you see the humanity of Jesus, but you see right next to it uh, the, the deity, the deity of Jesus. Now, it says here that when the mega calm came, that the disciples were terrified. I don't want you just to imagine. I mean, you're fighting for your life. I mean, they're rowing as fast as they can row, trying to get to shore. Uh, they, they, they're, they're hollering and screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. I love my mama, you know. I mean, all the things you'd say, I guess, when, this, when the ship is going down. And then all of a sudden, you can't hear a sound. It is just mega calm. And then they look to Jesus and they're scared now of something else. See, it's, their fear transitions here. They, they start the story scared of the waves. They end the story just as scared, but now they're not scared of the waves. They're scared of Jesus. They're fearful of the Lord, which causes us to ask the question, should we be terrified, as it says in verse 41? Should we fear the Lord. Well, as it turns out, that question is not as simple as it may sound. Uh, it's, um, in fact, it's, it's, it's pretty complicated, uh, not simple, but it is very significant. We need to know the answer to that. Should we fear the Lord? And if we should, uh, why and how should we fear the Lord? What should that look like in our lives? I, th I think that's a, that's a question that's central to the New Testament, and it's central to what it means to live the Christian life. So these disciples were fearful. They were terrified. What it says, the word terrified, is really three words in the Greek. It says they feared a great fear. Uh, so so th three words to express how fearful. They weren't just fearful. There was great fear. And they didn't just have it, they feared it. I mean, that's just as strong a language as you can say. They're terrified. Should we fear the Lord? Theologians have studied and written about this uh, for a long time, uh, especially uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, and they write a lot about servile fear and filial fear, and it, it, it's, it's really pretty complicated. But, but, but let me just show it to you in Scripture. And I think we can make it plain this morning. And I think this will be an encouragement to you and a challenge at the same time. So first of all, should we fear the Lord? I want to give you some verses. And by the way, when I write a message, what you hear on Sunday morning is just sort of half what I write. If you're ever thinking, boy, he preaches a long time. Listen, it could be much worse. Just remember that. And so what, what I've decided to do, I, I did this last week, but I didn't tell you. Uh, I decided to start putting the sermon outlines, the real sermon outline, uh, on, on the Internet. If you just go to noeldeer.com.
It's not a fancy web page, but just go to noeldeer.com and there you can see, you can download uh, the actual sermon outline, which uh, is two or three times the material that I share on Sunday mornings. Uh, and this is a good example because I want to show you what the Bible says about the fear of the Lord, but I'm just going to show you a little bit of it. And in the outline, there's, there's much, much more. So uh, should we fear the Lord? Well, the Old Testament says yes. And the New Testament says yes and no. That's why this is complicated. Let me show you what I mean. In Psalm 128.1, the Bible says, How happy is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. So fear, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it says in the Old Testament. And there are a number of references all in that outline uh, that talk about the fear of the Lord. It's endorsed in the, in the Old Testament. And the New Testament says we should fear the Lord. Let me show you a couple of places. Uh, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The Bible says in the New Testament, Philippians, Paul, the Apostle Paul says you should fear the Lord. And then in Luke chapter 1, verse 50, his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. So the Bible seems to say from beginning to end, you should fear the Lord. But let me show you some verses that seem to say the opposite. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and, uh, and following, I'll just read a little bit of this. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And so Paul says here, uh, lost people should fear the Lord, but saved people shouldn't. And you need to be careful that you don't fall back into the fear of the Lord that you had before you knew Jesus. Now you can call upon the Father as if he's your father, as if he's your dad. No fear of the Lord, he says. And there are other verses that say the same thing. And then there are just references in the New Testament. Take, for instance, the story of the prodigal son. You know that story? Uh, the lost son, it's a parable, and Jesus talks about a, a son who uh, rebels against his father and leaves and, 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 and lives a life that uh, is different from the way he was raised. His life falls apart, and he wants to come back home. But what's keeping him to begin with from coming back home? Do you know this story? He is fearful of his father. What's my father going to say when I come back home? But he eventually does come back home, and what does he discover? He didn't need to fear his father. His father was ready to forgive him and restore him. And the lesson is, don't fear the Lord. And then we've got verses like uh, Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with, uh, with boldness so that we may receive uh, grace and find help in time of need. The Bible seems to say over and over, don't fear the Lord. So what is the answer? Should we fear the Lord or shouldn't we fear the Lord? Well, let me, let me show you three ways that we should, that the Bible says we should fear the Lord. And in each of these three, I'll show you a way that we should not. Here's how we fear the Lord. Number one, don't fear his punishment, fear his grief. Don't fear his punishment, fear his grief. 
Now, we should not be scared of the Lord in the sense that we're scared that he's going to punish us. We shouldn't be scared of the Lord in that, oh no, God's going to get me. God's going to hit me on the head with a hammer and I, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm scared of the Lord. We shouldn't have that kind of fear. In fact, as we read a moment ago, Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Lost people should fear the wrath of God. You, the wages of sin is death and if you're not a child of God, you will suffer forever for the sins that you've committed. You should fear the Lord in that sense. But as children of God, we don't need to fall back into that fear. No, we shouldn't be fearful of God's presence. We shouldn't fear his punishment. Listen to 1 John 4, 18, because it addresses this in a very interesting way. It says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love, if you have a perfect love, it drives out fear because... Notice what it says. Fear involves punishment. And it goes on. He tells us that, that fear, the kind of fear we shouldn't have. This is the wrong kind of fear. The fear that we shouldn't have involves punishment. We don't need to fear God's punishment. God does not punish us if we're his children. God does not punish his children. He does not punish his children. He, he does not punish his children. Let that sink into your mind. We shouldn't fear his punishment. Rather, we should fear his grief. Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't disappoint uh, the Holy Spirit. So I read much of what, uh, I guess the, the most uh, prolific writer on this, Martin Luther, and I read as much of, of what he has written as I could the last couple of weeks. And let me see if I can just sum it up. He uses a lot of complicated language, but let me just see if I can sum it up this way. Ungodly fear fears what God will do to the believer. Now think about that. Ungodly fear, the fear we shouldn't have, fears what God will do to us. Godly fear fears what we will do to God. You see the difference? Ungodly fear is you're scared of what he's going to do to you. Ungodly fear says, oh no, God is going to hurt me. Godly fear says, oh no, I'm going to hurt the Lord. Now, not that you can, uh, you can hurt God in some physical sense and he is sovereign and, 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 and he is eternal joy and happiness, but you can grieve the Father because he loves you. You can break his heart, so to speak. You, you, you can disappoint the Father. So, so ungodly love fears what God's going to do to us. Godly love fears what we will do to God. Uh, one, one writer this week said it this way, uh, a slave fears his master's whip, but a son fears his master's displeasure. We're sons, right? I, I don't fear the Lord's whip, but I fear the Lord's displeasure. I think the best biblical picture of this is the picture of Peter following um, his denial. Jesus told Peter, Peter, one of his disciples, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Three times in a row, you're going to say that you don't follow me because you're scared. And, and Peter said, that will never happen. And Jesus says, oh, yes, it will. And Peter said, no, no, it's not. And then they argue, Jesus always wins, right? And so you fast forward a few hours. Uh, Jesus has been arrested and he's on trial and ultimately is crucified, but he's walking from one trial to the other through a courtyard, and Peter is in that courtyard. And Peter, at that very moment, 
denies Jesus for the third time in the last hour. And he says to somebody, I don't know who Jesus is. Don't lump me with that fella. And then Peter looks over his shoulder and who's standing there? But Jesus. Can you imagine? And it says in Luke chapter 22 that Peter was crushed with guilt and he ran away and wept bitterly. You see, it, it wasn't because he said it and Jesus punched him. No, he said it and Jesus looked at him. See, we don't fear punishment. We fear that we will grieve uh, the, the Lord. I, I, I was trying to think of the best ways to express this, and this maybe will tell you my, my, my mental level, but my mind went to a children's song that, that you will recognize. Listen to this. Be careful, little hands, what you do. You know that song? Martin Luther struggled to get this theology right, but the children's song gets it. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little hands, what you do. For your father is up above looking down, were the next two words? In love. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Now, what that, what that song is teaching, whether kids hear it this way or not, is that the Father up above is looking down in love. It doesn't say, be careful little hands what you do, for your Father up above is looking for an opportunity to smack you around. For the Father up above is looking for an opportunity to stomp on you, so be careful little hands what you do. That's not what we teach little kids, right? No, your Father looks down in love. He loves you. He loves you. And, it, and, and, he, and he's looking at us. We, we don't fear his punishment, we fear his grief. You know, I've got, uh, I had three little girls, and now somehow two of them are technically adults. I, I don't know how that happened. But I, I'm having a little bit of crisis over, over this, just to be honest, uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, but you know, when they, were, when they were young, when they were six or eight, and they did something that was wrong, it really didn't bother me. I, I mean, they just, they did something wrong, and we spanked them and hopefully they won't do it again. But you know, when they're adults, some of you have adult children, when they do something wrong as an adult, you don't spank them. You don't hurt them, they hurt you, right? See, it's, it's a, why does that happen? Because we love them. Be careful, little hands, what you do. Be careful, little hands, what you do. For your father up above is looking down in love. So, be careful, little hands, what you do. So don't fear his punishment, fear his grief. Number two, don't fear his presence, fear his absence. Now, the second way of looking at the fear of the Lord is to acknowledge that God does discipline his children. I said a moment ago, he doesn't punish us, punitive, uh, re retributive kind of punishment, but, but, but he does discipline us because he loves us. We discipline our kids, God disciplines his kids, thankfully. In fact, Hebrews 12, uh, 5 and 6 says, You have forgotten uh, the exhortation that addresses you as sons. You've forgotten that you're a son of God. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved or disciplined by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. God does discipline us. And then you go to the end of that passage, Hebrews 12, 12. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet. That means live rightly so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. We shouldn't fear the presence of the Lord. 
Don't fear being close to God. Don't fear worship. Don't feel, fear prayer. Uh, no, no matter how, how, how your spiritual life is gone, don't, don't fear encountering God through studying Scripture. Don't fear the presence of the Lord, but rather fear running or rebelling from the Lord. I am. I read a story from a pastor a couple of weeks ago. A uh, well-known pastor told a story of something that had happened long ago in his ministry. He said he, he was visiting somebody in his church, just a pastoral visit, and he had his son with him. Uh, the pastor had his son with him on the visit. And he said his son was six years old at the time, just a little, just a little fella. And uh, so they, they get out of the car and they walk up to the front door of this gentleman's house and they knock on the door and the gentleman opens the door and he is a dog, a gigantic organic dog. He said, the pastor said, biggest dog he'd ever seen. And uh, he said, the dog came out and looked at his son, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose. They were the same height. The, the dog probably weighed twice what the little boy weighed. The little boy's eyes got that big around looking at that dog, eyeball to eyeball. Uh, but the, the owner said, uh, the resident there said, the dog's a gentle, don't worry. And so they, they're, they're talking, and the boy and the dog are staring at one another. And then the pastor said to his son, I forgot something in the car. Would you run out and get it uh, from the car? I need to give this gentleman something. And so the boy turned, and he started walking to the car, and the dog started walking right beside him. And the, doy, the boy got scared, so he started going a little faster. And the dog got a little faster. And so the, the owner of the dog shouted out something. He said... Listen, don't run away from him. It's a friendly dog, but he doesn't like it when you run away. And when I read that, I thought, that there's some good theology in that. See, you can stand with the Lord. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Let us worship him. Let us, let us call him Abba Father. God is not scary unless you run from him. See, because God loves us, when we're in his presence, there's peace. But when we flee, uh, there's reason to fear. So don't fear his punishment, fear his grief. Don't fear his presence, fear his absence. And then finally, don't fear your circumstances, fear his sovereign power. So back to this account that we read, there are two specific fears the disciples faced. First, they feared the storm. They feared the circumstances. Second, they feared the power of the Lord. We saw that transition from one fear to the other. Now, how did they err? How did they uh, live wrongly when they feared the circumstances? Well, they didn't trust that God had a plan for them. And even though it might not have seemed like God knew because Jesus was asleep in the boat, God did know where they were and what they were going through. He knew it before it happened. And, and there was never any real danger. And they didn't have enough faith to see that in the middle of the storm. And so they erred when they feared their circumstances. Now, how did they honor the Lord when they feared Jesus? When they were in awe of Jesus? Well, it's because they worshiped him. They, they recognized his power. They had never imagined power so great that with a word, you could, you could calm the seas and stop the wind. And, and they went from not having enough faith in God, that's why you fear circumstances, to being in awe 
of the power of God. We don't need to fear circumstances. We need to fear or stand in awe of the power of God. You know, typically we get fear wrong. Uh, we're fearful of circumstances and we're not filled with faith. You can't be both. If you're fearful of circumstances, then your, your, your faith is weak. If your faith is strong, you will not be fear, feel, not fear circumstances. Listen to how Jesus said it. This will sound, this won't sound like Jesus. This, this sounds like somebody else said this, but Jesus said it. Trust me. Matthew 10, 28. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, what does that mean? Jesus is saying, we, fear is proper when it's focused in the right way. Don't be intimidated by circumstances. Whatever the doctor says, whatever uh, the boss says, what, what, whatever's going on in the relationship, don't, don't, don't fear circumstances. Instead, Stand in awe of the power of God. Once they saw Jesus silence the storm, once they saw his power, then their fear of the circumstances vanished. So how can we, just very quickly, how can we increase the fear of the Lord and shrink the fear of circumstances in our lives? I'm not going to spend much time on this, but number one, our letter A, we need to meditate on his attributes we need to spend time thinking about how great God is, how beautiful he is, how, how wonderful is his power. We need to think about his grace and his mercy and how much he loves us even when we don't love him back. We need to think about his omniscience. We, 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 need, to, we need to marvel at the greatness of God. When you read the Bible, don't, don't just read through these stories like that's interesting and that's interesting. No, pause. Spend minutes thinking about, hey, there was a storm. And Jesus said, silence. And it was silent and eerily still. Think about that. Focus, meditate on the attributes of God and your trust in him will rise. Letter B, worship his great, greatness. Worship is the antidote to, to the fear of circumstances. If you're fearful today, what should you do? You, you call me, I'll give you some free counseling here. If you call me this week, say, let me sit down. I, I, Pastor, I need some counsel because I'm scared of something. And, and you, you can call and we'll sit down. But I, I'll tell you now what I'm going to say. Worship. Worship. When I'm fearful of something, I, I, I go into my private place and I close the door and I sing songs. Uh, Andre, you wouldn't want to hear it wherever you are. But I, but I, I sing songs of worship. And I, and, I, and I turn to the Psalms and I read about the greatness of God. And the more I worship God... My, my fear of circumstances goes down. So that tells us we need to be faithful in our worship. That's why we can't be casual about, you know, coming, coming and being a part of corporate worship 25 times a year, and, 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 that, and that's good. No, no, it, we, we need to worship. That needs to be a regular, repeated activity in our lives, worshiping God, because it's an antidote to fear. And we need to worship with fervor. We were singing those songs a moment ago. I mean, some of them were, were very familiar to me. Uh, I guess all of them were familiar to me and to most of us. Um, uh, but but I, I tried to intentionally focus on what are the words and what am I saying to God and about God. We need to have fervor. We need to be focused when we worship. Worship is greatness. And then let her see we need to ride the waves of obedience. It's interesting. The people who go with the Lord 
are the ones who see the miracles. The people who stayed in Capernaum, they didn't see Jesus calm the storm. They saw the storm calm, but they didn't know why it happened. But it's only those people that are going with Jesus. It's only those people who are serving Jesus. It's only those people who are going on mission trips. It's only those people who are going out on a limb and serving the Lord. It's those people that see God show up in their lives. If you just sort of sit around and watch Netflix all day, God's probably not going to show up. You don't need him. Or at least we act like we don't need him. But those people who are going with Jesus are the ones who see his power. I read of another pastor this week, uh, Adrian Rogers, uh, may or may not know that name, but uh, sometimes I finish a message and I look and see, I wonder what he had to say about this same passage. And he had a line that stuck with me. The fear of the Lord is love on its knees. You see, when, when Jesus calmed the storm, uh, the Bible, Scripture doesn't say anything about their posture, but, but they worshiped it. When we, when we bow down and worship, when we pray, when we love God in that surrendered fashion, that is the fear of the Lord. Let us not be scared. Let us not run away. But let us live lives that honor God because we fear him because of his greatness. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, let me pray. Father, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be in that boat and to go from fighting for your life one moment to being so startled and so terrified by the eerie stillness of the water and the wind the next moment. I can't imagine. Father, I pray that each of us will have the same kind of awe the same kind of fear of the Lord the disciples had at that moment. When they recognized your greatness, when they recognized your power, everything else just faded away and their focus was on you. Father, let us recognize the same thing. Let us know your greatness and your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.